HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Modernist Pantry, providing magical ingredients for the modern cook. For free videos, recipes, tips, and tricks, visit blog.modernistpantry.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network, broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hello and welcome to Cooking Issues. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you pre-recorded from the Ace Hotel in Pittsburgh, PA. Joined, not as usual, with Nastasia the Hammer Lopez. She is not here. She is in New York City. And Dave is also not in the booth because we are pre-recorded from the Ace Hotel in Pittsburgh. But we do have, uh, just like last week, the evil cocktail overlord of the universe, Don Lee. Benevolent. Now, benev- now that he's my new business partner, I guess he's supposed to be benevolent. But I thought you liked being the secret evil. The secret evil... The operative word is secret. <laughs> so, we've gone through this before. So, wait, uh, you have to re- refresh me because it's a little late in the evening. I know you're much more into the this kind of uh, Star Wars universe timeline. Which, like, when is he good? Is he good when he's Senator Palpatine? No. Always bad. Well, when is he theoretically good? When does Amidala still listen to him? When, when his name is what? That's why he's a secret overlord in the beginning. <laughs> He's Kevin, secret bad. Kevin, you haven't been introduced yet. <laughs> also joined again with Kevin Denton, who is the I, I swear to I swear to God, folks, his title is international mixologist for Pernod Ricard. Is that true story, Kevin? It's just national, David. Oh well, what about Canada? <laughs> what about Canada? I think we have, yeah, we have something grandfathered in that I take Canada to. That's you two know, countries. On request. That's two, that's two countries. Yeah. You've been to Mexico. What about Mexico? It's the best place on earth. Do they have their own Kevin Denton, or are you the Kevin Denton of Mexico as well? I would imagine they have someone better. Oh. Well, Kevin Denton, for those of you that don't know, and you can't call in your questions because this is pre-recorded, but if you could, you could have called in about the bar program at uh, WD50 or at Alder about what he's doing uh, at Pernod Ricard now. But you know what? Uh, something we didn't discuss last week because you – by the way, the reason we're doing these pre-recorded is um, uh, we've all been fortunate enough for the past 
uh, week and a half to be doing a multi-city tour discussing new and interesting bar techniques where Don and I have been doing demonstrations to bartenders in, in uh, Pittsburgh, Denver, and San Diego about kind of new techniques in the bar industry, but also they, we've been doing uh, presentations that folk, good folks from Death and & Company and, and, and uh, uh, whatnot have been doing presentations on. What was their presentation on, Kevin, technically? The Art of Training. Right, which is actually important. I think people Riveting. don't... People, it was actually a really good talk. People don't take training. Uh, they don't take training. It's not they don't take it seriously. They don't think far enough in advance about how important training is, both in a, in a culinary as, uh, standpoint and I guess they do. You know, I would think people take training more seriously in a culinary standpoint, not in front of house, but in back of house. Uh, but bar, you know, bar training, I think, is an important important thing, and it's taken seriously by people who are working as consultants doing multi, like multi. Uh, you know, like they're doing multiple bars. They they have to roll out their training because they can't always be there, right? Well, I think you made a good point earlier that like if you really want to know something, you should have to teach someone how to do it, right? If you train someone, then you really have to know what you're doing in the first place. And I feel like those guys really know what they're doing, and therefore are really able to articulate good training. Right. You know what's uh, the dumbest saying in the world? Those who can't do teach. That's the dumbest damn saying in the whole freaking world. Like, if you can't, in the culinary world, and in many other worlds, I assume as well, if you can't teach, it means you don't have any idea what the hell you're talking about. You know what I mean? It's, uh, I mean, I guess there are people who are just non-communicative kind of savants who are really good practitioners, but... You know, the inability to be able to articulate what you're doing and teach the next, like, group of people how to do it just means that you're, you know, maybe useful for your customers, but you're not useful to the future of the profession. So, anyway, I think that's a crappy, crappy saying. And we have new guest today, Brian Bartels! So, Brian wrote a book that just came out this, uh, this year called... Um, the Bloody Mary. Now, what's the... It's the lore... Give me the full... The lore spiel. legend of the classic cocktail of brunch and beyond uh, for every little school kid um, who's ever wanted to aspire to make a Bloody Mary. Wait, That's sorry. the longest title at all time. Yeah, true, yeah. True so, enough. That's true. So, give me some give me some lore and legend. Lore and legend. Uh, the book itself, the Bloody Mary book, published by Ten Speed in March of 2017, uh, basically establishes... The background history of the Bloody Mary, uh, how it came to be named the Bloody Mary, and also 50 recipes, three different categories, encapsulating classic recipes, modern recipes, and then hosting party large format recipes. Um, okay, so give me some quick history. So Bloody Mary, is it some sort of Mary Queen Scots thing or what? It's I mean, not. She didn't drink a lot of tomato juice. One of the four legends is Mary Queen of Scots, which is great, but um, at the same time, not the validity of what we uh, have come to know today as our, our, our favorable first cocktail of the day. So, well, so what's the what's the what's the current accepted history of the Bloody Mary cocktail? It's established and and corresponded with um, Mary Warbarton, who is a socialite, a Philadelphia socialite, if there ever was one. Amazing name, Warbarton. <laughs> <laughs> Warbarton, a very it famous family from Philadelphia. Definitely, definitely rich. I mean, if I, I had a, a Dexter, out. Dexter C.K. Haven, Dexter. <laughs> <laughs> if I had the fifty dollars to go down to City Hall, I would change my name to Warbarton. To Warbarton, right Warbarton. Now. Right we now. all would. 
the, the four of us could be the, the four mighty Warbartons. Uh, That'd be amazing. Okay, so it's <laughs> a Wes Anderson film, isn't it? It could be actually the next Anderson. <laughs> why? Film. So why would they name it after her first name, which is you know nice but unremarkable, when it could have been called the Bloody Warbarton? That is a much more badass name. Yeah, yeah that true. sounds like a Scotch trick. Yeah. So talk. In Prohibition, 1927, in Florida, there was a... Uh, um, Ooh. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I just said, that's not where I wanted to be. Golden Age. <laughs> <Yeah>. the Golden <laughs> Age. George Jessel was a vaudevillian entertainer, comedian, actor, what have you. Um, was he any good? Have you seen any of his work? Have never seen looked? a single thing that he's done other than his Smirnoff ads. He was a Smirnoff campaign ambassador in the 50s. Really? Yeah. Hmm. Um, How were his ads? Uh, his ads were... Uh, he had a little bit of a... Barrel-chested, yeah, six-pack ads. Boastful, yeah. Like he looked like a, like a, a beefier Bob Hope um, before Bob Hope was. I guess when Bob Hope was skinny at the time, because he was probably alive in 1950. Uh, he was alive up until. Yeah. Come on, man. How come old on? Well, Bob Hope was, was alive until like in my life recently. I mean, Bob Hope lived to be a billion. Yeah. Um, listen, Mary Warburton clearly. Caused a lot of trouble. Okay, the Mary Warburton, <laughs> Florida, some vaudevillian dude, 20s. 1927, okay. when vodka was not even available, um, George Jessel claims that he was looking behind the bar after an all-night drinking out- outfit with uh, all of his friends, and they were trying to stay up. It was 8 a.m., and he grabbed bottles behind the bar to make a concoction. I don't believe that this. This is not a story I believe. It's not a story I... It's not a story I wholeheartedly believe either, but... Uh, it gets associated with every Bloody Mary story that's ever been like... This sounds like a, a lie. Don, what do you think? Is this a lie? I don't know. I, I'm just shocked by the Wikipedia fact that Kevin Denton showed me that Bob Hope was born in in 1903. Yeah, Bob So Hope in the 1950s, super, Bob Hope was, was my 50 age. years old. He was my age. Not even. Like, before 1950. This yeah. man lived to be 100. He died in like last 2003. Year. Yeah. Yeah, which to me is yesterday. 2003 for 2003. me is yesterday. I would rather Bob Hope created the Bloody Mary. To be all right, honest all right. With so this this vaudevillian Smirnoff peddler and, <laughs> and Mary Warburton are hanging out, sweating their sweating their tookuses off their tookuses. in 1927 Florida, and the guy happens to find a buttload of tomato juice behind the bar. Why you would have tomato juice in 1927 in Florida? Which is why only God knows. Impossible. Right, okay, so okay, so let's let's carry this improbable story to its conclusion. What happens? He makes all of these he basically assembles Worcestershire, lemon juice, vodka, which he calls vodka because it was a potato, uh, a rancid smelling spirit. That, this is like, a, this is a horror show. Up. Okay, go ahead. Exactly. Um, <laughs> he he brings all of these all of these items together along with the tomato juice, which had just only recently been canned. Um, by the Sacramento Corporation? By Cottage Inn. Uh, Cottage of, Inn. Uh, oh. Michigan. And uh, once he puts... What were you about to say? Once he puts everything together for Mary Warburton uh, and all of his other friends, everyone deems it an actual acceptable savory drink. They're all talking, drinking, having fun, still up all night, and the drink gets spilled on Mary Warburton's white dress. And she jokingly says, "George, now you can call me a Bloody Mary." Um, Wait, so is this a so weird? Loose. Is this a I weird agree. like? I agree. That's is this a weird like? Is it just a blood reference? Is it a sexual reference? Is it like? Is it some sort of like? Dave, family show. Well, I'm just curious. Like, no, this is this is, this is history. So this is history. We're, we're talking about. I mean, Duran Duran wasn't a band yet, but like at the same time, 
Very much not so. Like, you know. <laughs> it could have been. Mary Warburton could have been Rio, and she could have been dancing on the sand, but at uh, the same time... All right, time, well, I see where you're trying to go with this, but this is one of those stories that, to me, sounds like... Uh, Far-fetched. Well, horse hockey, you know what I mean? And so, like, also, like, uh, I don't know whether you've ever had a drink mixed by a vaudevillian in the morning when they're hungover in the piss-hot heat. Doesn't but, seem fit. No, I mean, like, I'm like... They're the only people that would come up with the combination of tomato and Worcestershire, you know, at that time of day. That sounds like yeah. crazy talk to and me. And a very kind of, like, not vodka town. Like, no one in Florida then was drinking vodka. No. Like, you know, uh, you know, Martha Stewart wasn't even, like, alive then, much less drinking. So no one was <laughs> drinking, like, like, vodka in Florida at that point. And, you know... It just seems very not sort of feasible. No, but the way that the Bloody Mary actually developed and, and was eventually, um, I think, established was because of um, Fernand Petiu, uh, Pete Petiu, as his nickname was. Petey Petiu? Petey Petiu, bartender at the St. Regis. Petey Pablo's, like... The King Cobar. What, the what? The, the King Cobar at St. Regis um, in uh, New York. He, um, just, when did, off, just off of uh, Central Park. Yeah, is, yeah, but that's not extant. It's still there, yeah. Really? A great martinis. It's like going to be like a 10-ounce martini, but... Uh, why would I want a 10-ounce martini? That's a nightmare. Give me two 5-ounce martinis. <laughs> <laughs> that's a freaking nightmare, people. The end of the world has happened. Two 5-ounce martinis is what you want. Uh, but also, go for the mural, Humpty Dumpty. Uh, beautiful mural. At Can't the, get it's that one of the sexiest back. rooms in New York City. Yeah, it's, it's a great room. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. And they recently did a uh, anniversary Bloody Mary party a couple of years ago. Ostensibly the birthplace of the Bloody Mary. Oh, I thought you just said your boy. There's your, two. Your there's boy Vaudeville and Warburton. Two rabbit holes here. That's the name of the Bloody Mary. The and when in doubt, blame it on Hemingway. Was, was ostensibly created by George Chessel. Okay, listen. Pete, Pete Petiu was the right. was the bartender who brought basically what I uh, liken to say is if Chessel. Owned the Cadillac, Pete Petiu took it out onto the highway and developed it. So, um, there's been a hard enough time locating the identity of who created the Bloody Mary. When did this guy die? When did Petiu die? Uh, late 60s, early 70s. So and he claims you... in 1964 in a New Yorker article that George Jessel created it, but then I developed it. So, Petiu put in... He Cayenne. name calls this Jessel dude. Yeah. So, it's Jessel's. No, it's not. Hey, wait, you're telling me that Jessel didn't even have, like, any sort of spice in it? Then it's not a freaking Bloody Mary. Exactly, which is why I think Petiu bloody is garbage. the one who develops. Exactly. Our modern-day version of the Bloody Mary is Petiu's. It's Petiu. So I give Petiu the credit for establishing the Bloody Mary. I don't know if you know this, but I like listening to David Wondrich, who, for those of you who aren't in the cocktail world, is, like, the cocktail writer about history par excellence. But... Uh, I enjoy the histories of the cocktails, but I find them almost always to be garbage and unsatisfying. In fact, most histories and most etymologies, I find, unless they are, they just don't have kind of meaning to me. You have to do it. You have yeah. to talk about it. People ask you for it, but it doesn't really talk about why you think X, Y, or Z thing is important, right? So let's get to the, the more important meat rather than trying to think of like, these knucklehead hungover fools in the 20s in Florida, which, why would you live in Florida before air conditioning? 
Like, why would you live in that? There's no DEET, right? You had no DEET. No DEET. You had no air conditioning. You, you, got, could, you could have had DDT. I don't know. Did they in the 20s? It's like a 70s. You know. 70s. That's 50 yeah. years. You're to, look, you're living in a place without bug spray and without air conditioning. It's just skaters and gators all freaking day. Palmetto, palmetto bugs, sulfurous groundwater. Like Florida is fine now because we have civilization to override the inherent nightmare that is the flat, sandy bar that is that state of Florida, which fine place, but not in the freaking twenties, right? That, uh, is that before or after Jerry Seinfeld's uh, parents moved there? I assume before, and you know, you know, they have a whole breed of cattle in Florida, the cracker cows, that are in fact like these cows that are bred. They're these skinny, scrawny, weirdo cows that can stand hanging out in the humid heat. Poor soil, palmetto eating, like bug nastiness that is Florida prior to modern technology. Wait, can, can they handle uh, brackish water? Are they like the Asabao pig? Because that sounds delicious. Or like the uh, the uh, San Michel sheep yeah. of the Florida. Maybe. I've never had a Florida uh, cracker cow. Someone out so there. Why, why are you railing on cracker cows if you've never had one? <laughs> I'm not. I think they're awesome. In theory, I've never eaten one. <laughs> Well, I, that was, that was a flip-flop, right? Like. No, I never say anything about, bad about the cow. The cow's a tough son of a cow. It's a cow. It's, like, tough. In fact, there's a whole sub... There's a guy named uh, Rhett... What's his last name? I forget. He's a, a pastor and a uh, cow whip maker. And he was vaudevillian. He's alive today. Don't make fun of this man. He's a real-life human being with children. And he makes cow whips... Out of nylon, because in Florida, it's so humid that if you make a leather whip, it will rot into nothingness in, in like two seconds flat. I've been told that kangaroo leather is the best uh, leather for making whips. Yes, but they don't have kangaroos in Everybody Florida. Everybody knows that. Everybody knows that kangaroo leather is the finest whip-making leather in the world. This is like, if you don't know that, why am I even talking to you? Like, if this is not just a freaking given that kangaroo leather is the toughest, supplest, best cracking whip leather that God has ever created, then there is no further discussion for us to have about any subject. That's our sponsor this week, right? <laughs> yeah, kangarooleather.com. You know, uh, the guy, David Morgan, who made the whips for uh, the Indiana Jones movie, uh, he, he obviously uses Australian kangaroo hide for his uh, better whips, sometimes with some kind of BS, regular, like, cow uh, belly on the inside uh, and just kangaroo on the outside for his lesser whips. But... Uh, the yeah, Australia is the best whip-producing country in the world by far, and it's because they have the best raw materials. They are the DRC, if you will, of uh, whip making, and it's just a known fact. And what's strange is is that all of us as Americans are completely obsessed with the bullwhip because we grew up with Indiana Jones and his crappy fedora, which is, by the way, wore a crappy fedora. Like, I'm just going to go ahead and say that. I love myself some Harrison Ford. He once pushed me aside at an art event years ago, and I was like, ooh, I was shoved aside like a piece of garbage by Harrison Ford. I finally made it in the art world in New York. And, um, you know... 
I love Harrison Ford, but that is not what the, like the traditional Australian whip is like. They they use a different style of whip in Australia, and I think since they have the kangaroos, we should probably look at their style of whip because they probably have something to tell us. Just saying. Uh, I don't know how we got on that subject. <laughs> we were talking about Bloody Marys. Yeah. So my question is. Uh, Brian, yeah. Why, uh, why did you get interested in the book? Do you like Bloody Marys? In other words, here's my question. So, like, I do a lot of work with cocktails. Sometimes, like, I do a lot of work, but someone's like, "Would you order that?" I'm like, "No, I no, I would not order that. I would have a glass of rosé instead." So, do you actually order the Bloody Marys? And why is it only a breakfast drink? Is it because it's gloppy and no one wants to drink gloppy stuff at night, or what? Well, it was the first cocktail I ever learned to make. I had to learn to make it in order to be a bartender. So. That was part of my introduction and a huge part of it. If I wanted to be a PM bartender, if I wanted to learn how to make cocktails, I had to make a Bloody Mary at brunch. It's part one. Part two was... So what's the brunch customer like? Well, in Wisconsin... Well, yeah, from your side, from the bartender's side, what's a brunch customer like? When I was learning to make the Bloody Mary or what the modern day version of a brunch customer is like? Yeah, well, your choice. Like, what are your feeling about brunch customers? People are very thirsty, and uh, the lack of uh, correspondence or communication is sometimes a little gray with uh, with people. I uh, I understand that you're still trying to wake up. You're trying shouldn't to get, you like, know what they want? You should. Kind they of either know want a mimosa or a Bloody don't. Mary, Brian. Like there's they two things they want: coffee and a big water. But they water. want a coffee. They want they call, want a coffee. They want a water. They want like big water. There's, abstract, there's abstractions there's to like one, what the request is of a brunch water. of a brunch drinker really wants. It's kind of confusing, but at the same time, you're there to like facilitate any request. So wait, I'm assuming you also had to make mimosas. Why didn't you write the mimosa book? Mm, I didn't have to make a lot of mimosas in my 20 year career as a bartender. I actually didn't have to make a lot of mimosas. What? It's kind of feel I feel blessed. What do you? What are your thoughts on the Bellini? Uh, didn't have to make a lot of Bellinis. No, 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 no. Don didn't ask you whether you had to make them. Don said, "What are your thoughts on the Bellini?" I don't think much about the Bellini. Oh, when I mean, you don't think about it, or you think it's a garbage drink? I don't think much about it. Here's my point. <laughs> I think a Bellini can be delicious. Often, is not. I have the same feeling about Bloody Marys, frankly. So, why don't you tell me why so many Bloody Marys are garbage and how you make one that's not garbage? Good question. Um, well, to follow up on your previous question, I actually, my palate had to evolve. That's how I got to like Bloody Marys and started to engage them a little bit more. What I think you just Marys? called your palate not evolved. <laughs> my palate is somewhat, it's constantly being, being checked, uh, which is important. But at the same time, um, what was your question again? First, well, why did you choose to write a book on Bloody Marys? You said it's the first drink you had to perfect. Second... Like, why, like, what makes a Bloody Mary good, and so many are garbage, and why are so many garbage? And third, I'll tack on to this, why is it only a breakfast drink? Is it because nobody wants to drink gloppy drinks at dinner? Oof. Um, I don't if mean, you need him to chime in, Dave has plenty of opinions. I, I, <laughs> by the way, by the way, I don't mean, I don't mean gloppy in a pejorative way. No, no, that's okay. Um, I actually feel like the... The reason I got so involved in it and the more I started writing about it and researching and, and developing the Bloody Marys was um, I actually don't like the viscous, soupy, thicker versions of Bloody Marys. I think the, 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 the bad Bloody Marys are the uh, prepackaged Bloody Marys. 
if they're house-made, I'm a little bit more um, inclined to try them. And actually, in the book tour that I've been doing, everybody's been told, been telling me that uh, their response to Bloody Marys and how they've enjoyed them that much more in the last five, ten years has been directly related to um, people who are creating them, creating them from, like, the ground up. And I think that's important, actually, uh, um, because you're channeling a certain kind of texture and dimension with however you're making your Bloody Mary. If you're using pre-packaged Bloody Marys... Um, well, come on, come on, please. <laughs> I mean, please. You know, please. If you're going to have a cheese plate, you don't pull out the Kraft Singles. No. <laughs> Kraft Singles are great on certain things, Kevin. Kevin Dent is giving me the stink eye. I'm just saying. It's not a cheese plate. If you're going to make an analogy like that, say something bad at the end. If it's going to be X, don't be Y. If Y is superior, like, singles are better than most Bloody Mary mixes. I know it's apples to oranges, but in the grand scheme of things. True. What? True which? (laughs) I would eat Kraft singles before I would eat pre-bagged Bloody Mary mix. Kraft singles any day. Okay, okay. I'm going to throw out out two random ones for you. Okay. One, V8 is a base instead of other stuff. Hate? Well, I have to backtrack a little bit. I but grew up not liking V8 or tomato juice. The hell? Like, do you, you like, walk bo- like crooked all the time? <laughs> I never drank it. It was, a, it was something I tried. I think I tried it when I was a little kid and I didn't like the taste of it. But my palate evolved. Do you know what I really love a lot? Is I used to love the weird little cans with the pull tab and the absurdly yeah. small teardrop-shaped hole in the V8 can. Yeah. All right, go ahead. Those are great. Those are great. Um, no, but V8... This goes to show no one actually wanted to drink it. Yeah, so sucking the V8 out of that can with that little V8's hole. V8's thinner, which is why I think people who don't like Bloody Marys are more akin to actually being open-minded about liking stuff like that. It's actually a vast... Um, I'm impressed by like how people feel about... like. It was a gateway drug to gazpacho for me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's exactly it. The thick, soupy Bloody Marys, the thin. The what about an alcoholic gazpacho? I think I think the gazpacho actually brought me to the Bloody Mary because I never liked the Bloody Mary, but I do like gazpacho. Mm, gazpacho is delicious. You know what I don't like? Blended gazpacho that hasn't been put through a vacuum to suck the air out. Gazpacho that looks like a freaking foamy mess. What if uh, you're like getting the what is it, the salmoreno, the one that's made with the bread, like torn mm. leftover bread from that's the That's good. Before, you should still garlic. hand chop it and let it soak in. You yeah. shouldn't blend the hell out of it so that it's all foamed and airy. True. That's like a nightmare that just means that you hate quality you hate everything this is why you cheat and use a blender but own a vacuum machine so you can suck the air out and get the color back in the gazpacho this was literally the first thing I taught people how to do in culinary school with the vacuum machine is take tomato puree and stop it from looking like nonsense that comes out of a freaking blender yeah because orange likes stuff it. yeah it's so gross gross disgusting people don't like that all right, so here's another one for you. Yep. Ready, Brian? Yep. Okay, so I'm playing my wife. Okay. And you're gonna con- you're playing me. Okay. Convince me. I don't I don't like drinking in the morning. I don't want a Bloody Mary. You're a dumbass. Now, convince me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm playing you. You're me. Yeah. Convince me. Convince Did your me wife as call my you wife. A dumbass. Like, oh yeah. You- <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Remember, channel unemotional robot. <laughs> yeah. 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 Okay, but like, all right, I don't understand. Why, 
Why are you just not like drinking in the morning? Like, it doesn't sound like me. You're asking someone else's feelings. This doesn't sound like me. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> when you say you don't like drinking in the morning, do you mean alcohol or do you mean all things? Because yeah. I've seen you drink coffee. Yeah. So, all right. Let's. I don't want to drink alcohol. What am I? An alcoholic? I, first of all, this is soupy. This is the Wait, morning. Do you go to meetings? No, you know, not, not an alcoholic. Dave, we have kids. This is irresponsible. Why would I want to drink more? Kids What do you care about it? Anymore? Oh, like, now you're just now you're just say V eight. I, I have to break character. Vitamins. I have to break character what now. Vir- why don't we take the Virgin Mary? And, <laughs> like, just trying to hurt me. V eight. Like, <laughs> <laughs> There's tons of vitamins and vegetables in V eight. So if we give the kids, all right. Listen, listen. I don't want to have alcohol in the morning. Why should I have alcohol in the morning? Hmm. Why should you not have alcohol in the morning? Because I do what I want. Why should you have alcohol See, in the morning? This is coming I mean, from three bartenders. Here's the point. Is, try to convince... Okay, it's a well-known fact that once you're in an airport, there is no time. We're convincing... Okay, I've got to get here, it. Here, it's real simple. If you don't want to drink in the morning, don't do it. No one cares. No peer pressure. Yeah, but Brian wrote a book on Bloody Mary's, which is a drink you're only allowed to drink in the morning. You what can, do you think you about can, people you who... Can, are, you can drink it anytime you want. What?! Listen, if you want it, just what? drink it. You can drink it uh, yeah, yeah. you want. You're allowed to drink it. Wait, wait. Are you guys, are the three of you saying that I can walk into a bar in the evening time when the sun has gone down? Certainly. And say, excuse me, I work in the nighttime. This is the morning. Give me a Bloody Mary. Or can I say I'm a regular person. This is the nighttime for me and I would like a Bloody Mary. You can, in fact, say that. Wait. So this is yet another barrier to good taste that has been thrown out the window. Like, when you're allowed to you, wear white you, clothing, you, when you, you're allowed to order a gin and tonic. You may be a poor quality human being. Oh. But you could say it. Oh, well, I can do anything. I could, I could shove pencils up my nose like Blockhead, but my, I don't. But you could also drink in the afternoon if you want. But my point I do is, what I want. My point is, is that... You don't order Bloody Marys at night, do you? Have you I, ever ordered? I order Bloody Marys never. Oh, all right. Why? Give me a tequila and sangrita. Mm. I'm in. Michelada. I'm in. Bloody Mary. Not my Okay, thing. so let's have this talk. The man wrote a book on Bloody Marys. This is what I'm trying to get to. The man wrote a book, book on Bloody Marys. Here we have Don Lee, supposedly benevolent cocktail overlord. Kevin Denton, Grand <laughs> a, Vizier a of Erno Ricard USA. And I have a man that says he doesn't order. What about you, Kevin? Let's be honest. Do you order Bloody Marys? When I want one. Which is? Occasionally. When? <laughs> Typically when I want some... You know, the best time to have a Bloody Mary is on a long morning flight when you don't leave first thing in the morning. Like, first thing in the morning, I just want to go to sleep, right? Right. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> when you, like, board at 8 and you're on, like, a three or four hour flight. The thing is, the Mrs. T's spicy Bloody Mary mix... Is that is a the, thing that exists? Without a doubt. Who's this lady? Is she related to Mr. T? Me. Uh, it's actually Mr. and Mrs. T's. Really? Right? It was yeah, but it is Mr. T? No. The Mr. T? Mr. It's nice Mrs. that they did it's it not, together, right? It's not B.A. Baracus. Oh. Well, I mean, you know, that's a character. Mr. T is a human. It's true. At any rate... I pity the fool. Once you have that, like, sometimes you want that uh, chilled, salty, savory thing to sort of press the button that some peanuts... Or some garbage, like, cookie is not going to press. Delta makes delicious cookies. Morning flight, man. When you fly cattle class, you don't get the delicious cookies, all right? You're in the back, and you're like, 
I'm going to split this Mr. and Mrs. T's with somebody next to me because 16 o- or uh, 12 ounces is too much of it. And you need to cut it like with a little bit of water. But when it's a little watered down and a little salty and a little savory, that's kind of a lifesaver mid-meal. Particularly if you're flying and changing a bunch of time zones and you're getting in like, oh, we're closed for lunch at 3. Or it's morning where you are now. Like it's sort of a a mediator of time zones where you can have a savory thing anytime. You know when I like it? When I like it best, because I'm not a morning drinker either. I don't like drinking in the morning. Uh, and, you know, I don't do brunch that often. And when I do, it's with kids and not with adults. So I'm not drinking. I like a I like Bloody Mary not in a full cocktail format. I like it in a shorter shot format in a group before I'm about to have a bunch of raw bar. Because like, to me, like, those, like, go together really well. So, like, you're going to have, like, the equivalent of... A half a cocktail, you're going to shoot it real fast, and you're going to have it right before you're about to pound, like, a whole boatload of, like, mussels, shrimp, oysters, that kind of stuff. That's a win. Crab. Crab. If you're going to have a lot of crab, Bloody Mary, tomato, delicious. This is a good mix. Sure. You know what I mean? Sure, if you're cocktail a weenie sauce. that has to have cocktail sauce with their raw bar, I yeah. mean... Did I say I was going to pour cocktail sauce on my raw bar? You pretty much did by saying you wanted a Bloody Mary beforehand. Uh, well, I'm being told that we've already been going. I've not answered a single question, which I have many. Classic. So, so we're going to go to a commercial break in a minute. I'm not saying I have to cocktail sauce in my raw bar. In fact, like if you take the time to dip crab meat into anything, you have wasted time. You just need to shovel like crab meat into your face as fast as you can. Can we all agree? Can we all agree, for the love of God? That crab is the most superior crustacean that exists. Crab is infinitely superior to lobster. For, crab meat, for meat. Yeah. Lobster shells, I think, make a better uh, uh, stock. Fair. But shrimp heads also make an excellent stock. Also true. Also delicious when fried. Yes. Mm. I love sucking on shrimp heads. But for meat, sucking crab, on shrimp crab, heads... Crab is king. Crab. 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 Crab is king. I'm a yeah. king. Crab. <laughs> okay, by the way, have you ever, have you guys ever had live king crab cooked directly, not frozen? Yeah. No, I've never been to Alaska. You don't have to. You can spend a lot of money and have uh, True World Foods owned by the Moonies. I'm poor. You can work for a company that does it for free. You think I paid for the king crab when I was working for FCI? I spent all my money on Kevin Denton, bears. will you buy me king crab? <laughs> Kevin, can Pernod Ricard buy Don Lee some live King Crab? I'll and we're going to cut the commercial. And listen, for those of you that haven't had the world's most dangerous catch live, like live King Crab is as delicious as you think it is. It is just crazy delicious. Because crab meat is the sweetest, most umami-laden, delicious crustacean meat that can be bought. Do you think masochistic crabs keep butter on them? <laughs> Are you familiar? I think I've spoken about this years ago. Are you familiar with the movie, what was it called? Was it called Night Shift with Henry Winkler? And, <laughs> yeah, this and, yeah, multiple times. Yeah, and yeah, so yes, feed the tune of the mayonnaise while they're still alive, Kevin. That's, that's what one should do. And we'll be back with more cooking issues. Mm-hmm. 
Modernist Pantry was created by food lovers and cooking issues fans just like you. Janie, Chris, and the Modernist Pantry family share your passion for experimentation and have everything you need to make culinary magic happen in your own kitchen. Professional chef, home cook, food enthusiast, no matter what your skill or experience, Modernist Pantry has something for you. They make it easy to get the ingredients and tools you need and can't find anywhere else so you can spend less time hunting and gathering and more time creating memorable dishes and culinary experiences. Visit ModernistPantry.com today to discover why Cooking Issues listeners call Modernist Pantry the cook's secret weapon. Be sure to check out their new kitchen alchemy. It's not really new anymore, Dave. It's like, you know... Anyway, uh, be sure to check out their Recent. new Kitchen Alchemy blog at blog.modernistpantry.com for free recipes, tips, and tricks. And don't forget to follow Modernist Pantry on social media to keep up with what's new and exciting in the world of culinary ingredients and tools. And we're back! So, uh, Don Lee has brought us some interesting Kit Kats. What are these, Don? These are uh, sake Kit Kats. It's what like is a it? white chocolate Kit Kat. That tastes like sake. We know there are two words I don't like together: white and chocolate. You know, I was chocolate just... fat. There you go. Kit Kat tastes like sake. I kind of understand what they mean by the sake, but it's in the it, finish. Mm-hmm. I think it, it really tastes like sake. It yeah. really tastes like sake. I like it. It's like nigori sake. Mm-hmm. Super ricey. Preach, Kevin. Mm. You like that? I really do. Sake Kit Kat. Good call. Do you know? The Chocolate Rain Fellow, Tezande, followed me recently. I put this on my uh, Twitter feed. I did see this. Yes. He has followed 604,000 other people before he followed me. <laughs> and I later found out, because I kind of called the robot that is Tezande's Twitter uh, machine out on this fact, and he's like, well, if people follow me back, I keep them, and if they don't, I don't. So... That means he probably followed 8 billion people before me. I'm probably literally the last Twitter person on earth that Tezande has followed. But I'm, I did go back and listen to Chocolate Rain once because I was followed. He liked Chocolate Rain. Good man. Everyone likes Chocolate Rain. Uh, we questions. have some questions. We ready to answer some questions? Let's questions. Do it. Questions. Hey, Dave Nastasia, David in the booth. Dave is not here in the booth. Remember, I told you I'm in Pittsburgh. Don, if you're there, nice. Uh, and, of course, uh, everybody's favorite punching bag, Peter Kim. Alas, Peter Kim is not here. He's too lazy to come out to He's Pittsburgh. He's in Africa. He's in Tanzania right now. Yeah. Uh, he might actually still be in Ethiopia, and when he comes back from Ethiopia, he has a lot to report on because he's well, is very interested in the special Ethiopian egg. So in Ethiopia, they have two kinds of eggs – like foreigner eggs, which are like the normal eggs that we have, and special Ethiopian eggs, and he's going to try to run down. He's eaten some uh, in the past couple of days. He's going to try to run down what that is. He's also going to try to tell us uh, about interesting foods he had in. Um, if you uh, you can follow him on Instagram, he's been posting pictures of eggs, right? Yeah, if you want to follow Peter Kim on Instagram, I recommend that. Yeah, he's been posting some egg pictures. Uh, anyway, he's not here, so we can't beat on him. Uh, I have some downtime soon. I was hoping to have another look at the miracle of moisture management in Comsol. This is the uh, program. This is this is Nick Devlin who, uh, who oh, I'm nice. working with. Yeah. Uh, so w- like, look for more uh, Comsol uh, stuff uh, coming in the future. Um, and by the way, his wife uh, Naomi uh, writes uh, cookbooks, including uh, some gluten-free cookbooks, and worked with my man. Uh, I don't never met him. I don't know why I'm calling him my man. Hugh Fernsley Winninghall from the Villa, uh, the River Cottage. You ever know about these books? Yeah. You reading these books? No. Good books. Uh, anyway, question. I'm thinking about our bar's autumn menu and wanted to include a sherry flip. A flip. All right, so you're good that we have bar people here. 
because uh, I know nothing about the modern flip. Anyway, uh, but I'm mulling over options as far as egg safety for those nervous customers. Uh, the internet suggests a minimum of one hour at 57 degrees, up to two hours for sous vide pasteurization, you know, low temperature, like in the shell. Uh, firstly, what are your thoughts on the time? Secondly, what would the shelf life of a batch of eggs be after pasteurization? I've also read they can be harder to whip after you've pasteurized them and that it might affect the texture of the uh, flip, so I'll need to run some tests. Uh, looking forward to getting the spins all later this summer and celebrating with a gin and juice at the bar. Um, of course, gin and juice is one of my favorite drinks. Don, when we open the bar again, are we going to have gin and juice again or are you going to make me have only only cocktails? Yes. Which... I gave you two options, and you said yes. And one of them's right. Ah, oh, you guys are the worst people in the world. So first of all, define for those who aren't bar people a, a modern flip. Don't take me flip, dog. Don't give me that. What? Give me flip. Define flip. Whole egg. Shake and drink. Okay. It's a typical base. Give me a typical recipe. Give me a typical uh, spec. I'm a big fan of the ruby port in a flip, the uh, coffee cocktail, classic drink. Uh, no coffee in it. Tastes like coffee. Ruby port, whole egg. Shake it up. So uh, maybe a little simple. Another classic drink that doesn't contain its own ingredient: the flaming Dr Pepper, lemon heart, amaretto. Do you like that? Man, I was never a Dr Pepper fan. Whoa, whoa, whoa! You don't like Dr Pepper the soda? Listen, Korean upbringing. I didn't have soda until I got to college. I didn't ask you whether when you started having soda. I asked you. You don't like Dr Pepper? Eh, I could take it or leave it. Kevin, I didn't have tequila till college, and I love it now. There you go. By the way, we could talk. Oh, by the way, not to go back because I know we already talked about the Bloody Mary. Why would you ever order a Bloody Mary? No offense. Why would you ever order a Bloody Mary with vodka when you could just have it with tequila instead? Or tin. Just throwing it out there. My preference is mezcal. Or Dr. Pepper. So you, do you call it a Maria or you just call it a Bloody Mary with mezcal in it? Actually, there's no name for a Bloody, Bloody Mary Oaxaca. with. Bloody Oaxacan. Don't they call it a Maria? Isn't that a Maria? Bloody it's Maria is tequila. tequila. So now you're going to be so freaking anal on me, like mezcal. Okay. Maybe it's a Bloody Mario? Mario. Don't Ma- get me. Mario. Don't get. Please. Like, these people haven't been hanging out with us all week. They don't know about the Mario Brothers, Mario Brothers. I think it's issue. an important question that needs to be put out to the world. Is it Mario or Mario? We're answering a question about egg safety. Okay. It is Mario Kart and Mario Brothers. They're different. Has there ever been a Bloody Mary flip, by the way? Or a Prairie Oyster that is flip? That is freaking disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> I'm no. throwing up in my mouth a little bit. That's eggs in purgatory, right? <laughs> if you scramble the egg beforehand and turn it into some sort of, like, omelet... Prairie Oyster cocktail was... Predates the Bloody Mary. Like, These nuts. Yeah, like, like, that's a. All right. Wait. Question: Egg safety. Egg safety. So back to egg safety, Nick. The um, one hour is sufficient at fifty-seven degrees. Once it gets up to fifty-seven, but the fact of the matter is, um, salmonella is what you're shooting for. It'll probably pasteurize earlier than that. Uh, I usually do fifty-seven degrees for about an hour. Two hours is not going to hurt it, or you can drop it. Look. 57 degrees Celsius is like 135 Fahrenheit, and after about an hour, the egg white will be slightly thickened, but not a lot. Two hours, it's going to be a little bit more appreciably thickened. You'll still be killing salmonella if you drop it down to 56 after that first hour, and the inside will already be hot, so you might want to do that. I've never actually run the test of 57 versus 56. I have, sorry, 57 
uh, versus one hour versus 57 degrees for two hours. I have run with Kenta Goto after he got falsely accused of, uh, of serving raw eggs without mentioning them on the menu at Pegu Club years ago of raw egg versus sous vide pasteurized egg versus box pasteurized egg. Box, uh, box pasteurized eggs are a garbage product for garbage people made uh, for garbage consumers. They should never be purchased, bought, or used. If you see someone purchasing, buy them or use them, you should uh, provide an intervention. Uh, you should throw them out and you should excoriate your supermarket for selling them. They're a bad product. But um, pasteurized eggs that you make yourself are pretty good, but not quite as good as raw eggs. But it's not that big of a difference. Um, but they're, they're totally safe and they keep, they keep a long time. I mean, eggs, frankly, keep a long freaking time. So eggs that you pasteurize are certainly gonna keep a long freaking time. Uh, I would say that you are not affecting the keeping time, you're pasteurizing them, but you're also possibly washing off any waxes on the outside of the eggshell, so that's probably, the point is moot. I would just say that you have not affected their keeping at, at all. Just use it raw. Um, you know, some people are really freaky about it, and um, I mean, I agree with you, Don. Some people, here's an interesting test that someone can run for me that I didn't. You guys are all familiar with wet dog, right? So, and you take an egg white, and you crack a fresh egg white into a drink and you shake it um, after a couple of minutes, you may or may not get, although you often do, the aroma that I call wet dog, uh, very similar to using transglutaminase, meat glue on something, you get this wet dog aroma. And uh, you know, famously, um, people put bitters on the top of their egg white drinks and people do it because, because it's pretty. No, it's to cover up the stench of the egg white. Uh, and so one way around this is to crack your egg whites a good two to three hours before a shift, let them flash off in a quart container, close them, put them, uh, you know, afterwards you can close them and no wet dog because you flashed off all of whatever the precursors to the wet dog are. Um, but what I've never done is tested whether or not wet dog happens after pasteurization, but that'd be an interesting test, wouldn't it? Can you kind of cover it up too with like osmotic, uh, oils and things like that if you put kind of like when you put eggs in rice with a truffle and it sort of absorbs that truffly flavor. Even before seen, you crack them? Yeah. I've never heard of this. We Tony Canigliero did it. Uh, I can't remember the compound, but he was going for the fresh cut yeah, grass. He, he, yeah, he did it with hay and he did like a smoked hay thing. And, he, you know, it's like a, a truffled egg, you know, when you put an egg in the thing and yeah. it picks up the aroma of the truffle. I don't know. Um, I will say not osmosis. Osmosis, specifically the random movement of water across a semi-permeable membrane. So it's a semi-permeable membrane. You are. How but is but it? only water, the movement of water, oh. not movement of anything else. Osmosis okay. is specifically when water moves. So when is it like an aromatic compound? How does that? And it's an infusion huh. of some sort. You know, it's picking up so the flavors. So it's not a good. Yeah, but it's not osmosis. Yeah. Okay. But all I can say for sure is I've never tested any of this, so I can't say. Where did uh, Tony write about this stuff? Uh, in his book. The second one? I think the first one. First one? I heard him talk about it years, many, many years, years ago. ago. Yeah. Anyway, go look it up. But it's an interesting test. I would like to, I would like to test, uh, and fortunately the person who asked the question, Nick, lives in England, so can go ask. But the, um, it's an interesting question. I don't know whether pasteurization is going to affect the wet dog uh, aroma or not. All right, let's go to the next question. Uh, this is from Matt Z. I recently got into kegging sparkling water, but right now it's just filtered tap water, which, by the way, is the best. You know what? You know what? Like, seltzer water should just be ripping 
purified water. Ripping, delicious, purified water. I think, uh, well, let me finish the question. Uh, I'm wondering if you have dabbled into trying to mimic mineral water from specific sources or any additions to make it taste better. And if so, do you have a good jumping off point? Is it worth it? Any other way to top, uh, to uh, up my fizzy water game, Matt Z? Okay, okay, okay. Darcy O'Neill from um, The Art of the Drink and from his uh, well-known soda book from like six years ago uh, called Fix the Pumps, which is apparently a boob reference. Did you know that? Boob nope. reference. So when the soda jerks were working, they'd say to each other, hey, you've got time to fix the pumps. Fix and it was, pumps. Uh, you know, go uh, check out the lady that just walked in. But specifically, a woman who's stacked. Correct. That's the, which I don't really like those references. Scumbags. Scumbags. Scumbag reference. But uh, anyway, Darcy used it, and he, uh, he doesn't strike me as a scumbag. No. Good man. Yeah. Uh, Canadian. Canadian, yes. But, yeah. So he's a nobleman. Yeah. Anyway. Point being uh, that Darcy uh, is also in his uh, real life work job chemist uh, and uh, did a bunch of work on researching old articles for Erzot's mineral waters. And a lot of the mineral waters have been classified as to their exact mineral composition. Uh, and so he has a lot of recipes about recreating these mineral waters, and you can look them up. And uh, Martin Lersch from Kaimos, who uh, uh, is the famous uh, compiler of hydrocolloids recipes um, called Textures or something, also has a comp- uh, compilation of all of these um, water recipes. Uh, I have never had one work. I have bought a bunch of this stuff and tried to mimic, for instance, some waters that I enjoy. So for those of you, some waters that you can purchase that I enjoy are Gerolsteiner. I enjoy Gerolsteiner because I like heavily... If I'm, I'm either going to have seltzer with no minerals in it or I'm going to go freaking mineral on you. So I like Gerolsteiner. I like Vichy Catalan, which I think is delicious. Um, I like regular uh, Vichy. I like Apollinaris. Uh, these are all good waters, and I've tried to mimic some of these waters, and I have been, in a word, unsuccessful. Uh, now, let me... And Darcy uh, points out quite rightly that you have to add things in certain orders, and the solubility is really hard, but boo ba bee ba ba But the way that real mineral waters are formed is deep in the earth, in rock, under high pressure over a long period of time, sprouting up uh, like you know under pressure and then you get them like that and then in fact especially carbonated mineral waters because why would you drink flat mineral water where we are not animals like what i can drink any sort of water that's flat i can drink garbage the word for water that is derived from rainfall is meteoric so any water that is primarily derived from recent rainfall is meteoric water and if you're going to drink meteoric water then just drink tap water unless you live in Florida where the tap water is garbage or if you live in Hong Kong where the tap water is garbage. Where else? Who else has terrible tap water? People, who has terrible tap water? Anyone? You're not going to shout out your favorite horrible tap water? Los Angeles for a long time. Had bad tap water? Terrible tap water. Southwest has got to have some terrible tap water. Flint's definitely winning right now. Oh, but that, I mean, that's just, you're being mean. Like, they, like, poison You want to do some, like, uh, fracking water you set on fire water? Cleveland, you mean? Fire water from the rivers? All along it. The Cuyahoga. All the, uh, all the, the the old, uh, you know, the, the... The, the salt uh, oil uh, deposits. Uh. Huh. So you're saying I'm just spoiled? Like I have. Yeah, you are, you are. You are very spoiled. I'm on, in general. 
in general. Water but rich. I, we I are water rich. Like, not only does New York have delicious tap water, you, you, but we you, can shower and poop in it and not have to worry about it running dry. You're not, you're not a survivor of the, uh, you know, the, the great drought of California in the, uh, the 2010s. No, but I flew over that once, and it was crazy looking. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you fly over California during heavy drought time, and you're like, this should not exist. My produce should not be this cheap. You know what I mean? It's like... All, honestly, all I can still think about is the uh, the joke that if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the precipitate. Ah, ah strong. You know, uh, New York... That's one of those things that could also go. Yeah. But anyway, back to water. Uh, very fortunate. Uh, anyway, meteoric water is relatively soft, hasn't had time to pick up a lot of flavor. If it has, it's from urine... Poop and effluent. So it's possibly like, dinosaur urine. No, no, not if it's meteoric water. That's what I'm saying. If it's meteoric water, if it's recent water, it's like all of the pollution is recent pollution, like bacteria, nasty, nasty stuff, uh, and you don't want that. This is why you're gonna dig deep. Dig deep. That's right. So you want to get stuff, that, and this is why certain like marketing fools, like the Fiji people, say that their water is X number of thousands of years old. But if you really want badass water. You have to go millions of years old. And to go millions of years old, you got to like, tap some deep-seated stuff. And if you really want to do that, and you live in the New York uh, area, you're going to want to go to Saratoga Springs. <clears throat> Saratoga Springs has the most badass, non-meteoric, like millions-of-year-old water that you can possibly find. And that stuff is salty and crazy and good in small quantities that don't make you rush off to the bathroom. Because, frankly, highly mineralized water is like uh, it's it's like uh, Belmont steaks for your butt, you know. It's like it just boom makes you want to go like nobody's business. It's like coffee on steroids. So if you made coffee with this stuff, which would taste horrible, by the way, don't do it. So don't do it. But if you have, I have had a coffee with it. So I drank like the most hardcore of the Saratoga Springs waters, which is Hathorn Three which is the most highly unmixed water, the most deep earth uh, salt water. It's about a third of the salinity of, salt, of uh, ocean water. And that stuff and a coffee is supposed to make you like, have to run while you're set on spray to the bathroom to try to get there in time. And I have to report back, not to brag, but I am iron butt. I am iron butt. I was not this is This is why you will be patient zero in the super poop, you know, poop exchange. That's correct. We can get, we've discussed this before. We can get back to it at some point. Point being. I will say that I had those waters when you brought them in. And they're interesting, right? I can do, like, well, verification the, uh, of this. You had the, uh, the the search for deliciousness that we made with that instead of the salt, right? That yep. was pretty weird. Uh, I think if you did bottle it, use it like saline, it would uh, be real nice. It's got a little weird, like, a... Uh, Radioactive thing going on the back of the throat. Some of them are radioactive. From the Polaris, the Polaris spring specifically is radioactive. But the the issue is, is that these are formed under very high pressure. So if you if you let those things go flat, all of a lot of the interesting minerals precipitate out. So you're part of the precipitate in this case, and you the water has died. So it's very hard to take uncharged water, not under pressure, and recreate the same mix that you would get from the spring. So the answer is, uh, I've not had a lot of success. This is a long way to say no. This is a very long explanation to say no. Right? And yeah, at the same time, New York is still like, from your resources of the way that you're referencing water, 
Saratoga Springs being like the best of the best, right? Like, so, I mean, locally. I mean, like, I think, yeah. like, I think that Saratoga Springs they don't bottle. So the stuff that you call Saratoga water is garbage, meteoric water. Yeah, it's, not- it's garbage. No offense to them and their blue bottles, but that is not the water of millionaires. That's not what people travel hundreds of miles or thousands of miles to take the cure in. That's just like water that was rained a couple of weeks ago. That right. is not the stuff. What about what about that deep Canadian stuff? I have a years long dream, Don, and that years long dream is to go to the Timmins zinc mine in Ontario, Canada, to go two kilometers deep into a hole in the ground and find the spring, which I happen to know, I'm told that the water that springs out of it is extremely valuable and can't be wasted. But I also know that the scientists don't capture all of it and that it leaks out at a rate of approximately two liters a minute. And that this water has not gone through the water cycle in approximately 2.4 billion years. And that it's incredibly salty and that this guy wants to use it in a cocktail and some freaking Canadian scientist won't let me have it even though I've emailed her several times saying that I am in fact not a crank and I'm a real person with real credentials who would like some of her water. Modern day Ponce de Leon you are. The fountain of old, baby. Okay, we have a question from Dan. For a couple, I think I've answered this. I've answered this. Did I, did I talk recently? Does anyone remember about BPE and Rubbermaid containers? Rubbermaid. You did. All right, Dan. If I've not answered your Rubbermaid BPA questions, text us back. We got a question from Victoria, British Columbia, in Canada, and let's see what we got here. Uh, hey, Dave, the Hammer, and other Dave who's not here right now. Question from Canada. I know you love us, even though you like to give us plenty of grief. Hey, your brother, you're our brothers and sisters from up north. So, you know, why would, not, why would we not give you grief? You like to give Canada grief, that, that's, right? That's how you know we love you. So, yeah, so how do you know that I don't like you? you never talk about them. Don't think about them. <laughs> yeah, right. Motionless robot doesn't think <laughs> yeah, about yeah, things. Yeah, 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 yeah. If I say anything about you at all, it, that's like, you know. He cares enough to hate you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I don't hate Canada. Canada... You know what? You know when I hated Canada? Remember that, like, period of a couple of years? Remember, here's what I'll never forget this. So, like, you know, American money always kicks Canada's money's butt, right? Like, this is not, like, this is just our money is historically, in my life, worth more than the Canadian dollar. So, like, my wife and I could go to Niagara Falls, enjoy the better Canadian side of the falls. We have the garbage falls. The U.S. has the crappier part of the Niagara Falls situation. But you can go over there, and even if you don't have a lot of money, the American dollar is so strong that you're like, woo! You know, Tim spend Hortons. Up. Yeah, as many donuts as you want, honey. Do it. You know what I mean? So point being that, remember a couple of years ago when the Canadian dollar reached parity with the American dollar? Oh, yeah, dollar? it was beating us for a while. Yeah, and I was like, this is what we get. This is our punishment. But we're back now. Question. Yes. Oh, Canada. Love it. I love listening to your show. I've been a semi-frequent reader of your blog, and I've been uh, happy to have your shows to listen to while I make a small batches of ice cream over here in the west coast of British Columbia. Keep up the good work. Uh, you have a love affair for Crosby's Molasses. I do. Crosby's Molasses is delicious. Any of you guys northern people? Northern people? Northern. Uh, How north? What? How like, north? Freaking Maine north. 
Well, like Nanook of the North. That's Maine. North Eastern. I'm Midwestern North. Like I'm North Midwest. In Madison, Wisconsin, where Wisconsin. you are from, yeah. Do they have Crosby's molasses on their cheese curds or not? No. no. <laughs> <laughs> Nor on their bratwurst, good sir. Brats. Do you eat pasties or pasties, whatever you call them? Nope. That's only a Minnesota thing. That's Minnesota. Oh, whoa, too good for you. You don't like you don't like a meat pie all of a sudden. <laughs> Give them away the bratwurst. All right. All right. Okay. Question. Crosby's molasses. What gives? You live in the U.S., so why not get sorghum syrup? I will gladly mail you as much Crosby's as you want in trade for any good sorghum syrup. I've never had good sorghum syrup. I don't think think it exists. But it could exist. It's a traditional... Like a Philly cheesesteak. Oh, Don Lee (laughs) does not believe that he has ever had a good... Philly cheese. Well, I know I've never had a good one, but there might be a good one out there, much like sorghum syrup. Don't be freaking absurd. And the, by the way, like, I don't understand why Philadelphia gets to own the freaking cheesesteak. Cheesesteak is an inherently delicious concept and also very well executed on, a, on many situations. What could you possibly not like about sauteed shaved steak with melted cheese and sauteed onions on a roll, Don? Well, if you took those rolls and dipped them in jus, you'd have a great French dip, a la Philippe's. Los Could Angeles style. No, but French dip doesn't have cheese and onions. It doesn't need it because it's delicious with oh, meat gosh. and the juice. It's a different meat. sandwich. Different, thank you, Kevin. Fully totally totally different, different sandwich. sandwich. <coughs> and the, dri- the drippy, like, juice sandwiches. Sauce. That's, that's like a, that's a knife and pork thing or it's like a multi-napkin thing. Whereas the Philly cheesesteak is great in that you have... Goopy singles or cheese whiz as you know, processed Listen, cheese, no matter what. As an, as, an, as an adult, I like Gruyere on cheese. I'm, I'm Philly cheesesteak well, agnostic. Kind of BS. I'm not an atheist. I don't. It's not like I said there is no good Philly cheesesteak. I just haven't met the good Philly cheesesteak yet, so I'm, I'm open to it. I but I think it's like a it's like a thing, and you know the the good version of it is going to be different than the original thing. Not saying the original is the best interpretation of it. But like, if you're calling something by its name, a Philly cheesesteak is like I just call them cheesesteaks. Kind of an overcooked. I don't add the Philly because I'm not from Philadelphia. I feel like I can make a decent cheesesteak. So, what's your thought on the chopped cheese? What do you mean chopped cheese? Chopped cheese. Tell us chopped cheese. Never had like the uptown like like chopped cheese, like a bodega. Uptown. What are you talking about? Oh man! Oh wow! Mm. The cheese in the we got we we got to take you uptown, Dave. I guess we got the like next episode sorted yeah. out. Like what? You're, you're next episode like of Cooking Issues coming to you live from a bodega. Of, of Philly cheesesteak, but it's chopped cheese. Uh, uh, where do they make it? Yeah. Harlem? Is yeah. it a Harlem dish? Yeah. yeah. And it's called chopped cheese? Yeah. Chopped cheese. You walk in and you say, chopped cheese, please. Yeah, but it's not just... Only if you want to rhyme. Oh, but you chopped cheese is the actual dish it's called. Yes, mm-hmm. and it's a cheese steak that they hack the cheese into the meat. No, it's not a steak. It's uh, it's like ground beef, kind of like a like a hamburger patty chopped up. What about you guys? Anyone had this? Who's had this? You've had this. You've had this. Never. Okay, this is a very it's like a trendy thing to have right now. Regional thing. Well, this is be- well. Notice, I am a not a trendy fellow. Judging by your outfit, I don't believe you. <laughs> so, listeners, if you could only see this outfit. Salmon shirt. <laughs> I have a very fetching salmon shirt. Anyway, uh, point being, I've not, had syrup. The, I've not had I've not had this chopped cheese. I will try this chopped cheese. 
Um, what kind of role is the chop cheese on? It's like on a hero. Yeah, it is a well, hero. Please, please. This can mean anything. Are we talking like a thin thing, like Dave, you might Dave. have a Cuban sandwich on? Are we talking sor- like a meatball sor- sorghum syrup? Sorghum syrup. Now you have me on the chopped cheese. I've never. I told you I haven't had a decent sorghum syrup. If I had a decent sorghum syrup, I would call Surly Dave right now and be like, "Here is my decent sorghum syrup. Send me as much Crosby's molasses as you can." But I've not. Have any of you guys had a decent sorghum syrup? Never. It is it a traditional sweetening agent, and so it would be good to get. Do you guys know about the molasses flood? Oh, yeah, of course. Nineteen nineteen. Right before Prohibition. So my great aunt Annette was alive during that time and remembers it. She used to work at the Schraff's factory in Boston and was like, it still smelled like molasses in the summertime. <laughs> she didn't talk like that. She was from Boston. And she was the last surviving of the three maiden aunts on my stepfather's side. And vividly, vividly remembered that because... Uh, she was born in 1909, so she was like 10 years old when that happened. So that was a legit thing. And she imagine this little old lady in this factory stuffing candies into Schraff's uh, little uh, cups. Auntie Annette, does it, you know what? It's kind of sad. Recently, the last of that whole generation in my family and my stepfather's family died. So I have no more connection other than my crazy stories to that whole kind of uh, generation. But yeah, the molasses flood was uh, amazing. I think it was... If my memory serves me, it was like it got hotter than normal on that day. They'd overfilled the molasses bin. It was a ch- like cheap rate molasses that had a little bit too much water. Fermentation started. The uh, container was also built poorly, and kaboom! And imagine, like, how did your uncle die, Jimmy? He drowned in molasses. You're like, what? He couldn't outrun the molasses in January? He was kind of slow. I'd like to drop it now. You know what I mean? Because, like, how do you tell people that your family members were killed by a wave of molasses? Horses were killed by it. A lot of people killed. And, interestingly, they had overfilled the molasses because, people, it was just prior to Prohibition. Now, it might be a little bit of a canard in that story because the people that owned that molasses tank were one of the few people that were actually licensed to produce uh, alcohol for industrial use. And so they could have continued to produce molasses. But well-known fact by everyone in this kind of uh, alcohol room here is that uh, Prohibition killed Medford rum, which no longer exists, which was drunk by Paul Revere on his ride and is still commemorated to this day in Medford, Massachusetts by a dram of rum at a particular doorstop. Wayne Curtis told me that, even though like I grew up going to Medford, I had no idea but Wayne Curtis, the rum uh, historian, taught me that. Uh, and also Monongahela rum here was pretty much destroyed by prohibition. True story. Uh, rye. I meant rye. When I said rum, I meant rye. Uh, but a lot of uh, good things were destroyed by prohibition. But, you know, without it, all the pre-prohibition people wouldn't have a job, would they? Would Sasha have become so famous if there hadn't been a prohibition and a crappy uh, interim, interregnum years where we had garbage cocktails? Would he have been so well-known? I never thought you'd be such an optimist, but you managed <laughs> to find the bright side to prohibition. So Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, good gangster movies. There's another. That's true. No, no Boardwalk Empire without Prohibition. Yeah. Yeah. You like that, right? You're a Steve Buscemi fan, aren't you? I look just like him. What? <laughs> I served a drink to Steve That's Buscemi once. That's just a once. thing that no one ever wants to say. I served a drink to Steve Buscemi once. Good guy. Okay, second question. As stated, I make ice cream for a living. Recently, I've been getting many requests for Tiger Tiger or Tiger Tail ice cream. 
which I understand it is a very Canadian flavor. Is this true? Well, it sure is crap ain't an American flavor, I'll tell you that. No one's heard of Tiger Tail. We had to look it up on the internets. Um, do you not get Tiger Tail in New York City? We do not. The we that not is me do not. No, We don't not even yet. get moose tracks. We get moose tracks. All you have to do is go to Connecticut. Again, New York City. <laughs> have you ever walked into a bodega and gotten moose tracks? I don't walk into bodegas at all. <laughs> Well, la di da, la di da. You've oh, been proving you time and time again on this talk I, look, that you I are shop, the one percent. I shop. You get the oh, good cookies on Delta. I shop. I shop at a fine fair. I shop at a fine fair, which is like right equal to a Key Foods in a sea town, right? Don't give me this crap. Well, honest, I don't have the mon- I don't have the money to pay the middleman bodega. I don't. I can't. I can't afford the convenience of shopping right downstairs from where I live, people. Anyway, uh, Tiger Tail, Kevin, why don't you tell us what Tiger Tail is? Uh, it's an orange-flavored ice cream uh, with a black licorice swirl, uh, and it looks really wild. It's pretty psychedelic. It's popular in Canada, but seldom found elsewhere. Uh, created by Morgan Carr, according to Wikipedia. Um, you know, so, orange uh, and black okay. licorice is distinct. Guys, a uh, quick bet. How likely is it that the person who sent this question created a fake Wikipedia page about the tiger tail. No, come on. 60%. It's a non-zero number, right? It is a non-zero number. Everything's a non-zero number. Uh, well, no, that's not true. Every probability is a non-zero number. Greater, you know, Mostly. Mostly. Um, so, Surly Dave, uh, none of us, and while I myself live in a box, uh, Don and Brian and Kevin get out a lot, so I'm assuming that this doesn't exist in New York, but here's what I'm going to say. Americans hate licorice. Let me repeat this. Americans hate licorice. Uh, and so I don't think it's ever going to become popular here, but I would like to try it. I really like creamsicles. Orange and vanilla is like... Yeah, like, orange and licorice this. is kind of just like stomping that in the dirt. <laughs> Do you not like li- licorice? Wait, wait, hold on. Yeah, you got flack from uh, the like last issue. That uh, you are a not uh, a discerning ice cream eater because you did not call for a specific brand of ice cream. And uh, I'd like to come in your defense, Kevin, that uh, n- unless you're buying ice cream for yourself, when have you ever been an offered an option of two different brands of ice cream in a like retail establishment ever? I think it's a, it's a not... Full non-starter. And also, I would love to throw in the... Kevin Kevin Denton eats those crappy, unified brand ice cream sandwiches that weigh, like, you know, a half a gram per liter. Your salmon shirt is out of line. I've taken to making my own ice cream recently, and I think that's the only way to go. What? That's not true. Most home ice cream machines are garbage. So I'm going to do a pitch for Breville and have them, you know, be your next sponsor because their home ice cream machine... Is pretty dope. Let me ask you a question, Kevin. The ice cream out of your machine, I'm sure it's good the minute it's made, but what about the next day? Um, it's better because then it hardens and crystallizes in a way that I think is superior than store You lost me at crystals. You lost me on crystals. You lost me with crystals. It's creamy and delicious. We will, okay, I'll tell you what. Here's another question I have for you. This is the other answer because I'm, uh, I'm a real butthead when it comes to this. How many minutes? What's your batch time in minutes? I don't know. Roughly. 60. No, dude. 
ice cream needs to be frozen in freaking 10 minutes or less. Or your crystal size is too large. Says the man that usually has liquid nitrogen all the time. All right. Maybe 15 minutes. Right. 60 minutes? That's the, hey, listen. I didn't purport to be right, like listen, an Kevin, ice cream girl. Kevin, Kevin, you know, we're friends. So what I want to do is I would like you to force me. I am an honest fellow. And I will have, I would like you to make ice cream and store it for a day. I will come over to your house all the way over in Brooklyn and I will taste it and I will see whether or not your stored overnight ice cream is actually as good as someone who spent millions of dollars on an instantaneous uh, freezer that can freeze stuff instantaneously and has spent I don't know, their whole life working on producing like awesome texture that is something... You know, some of us can't afford that nice million-dollar ice cream that you have. One percent. Kevin, Kevin Denton... <laughs> Kevin Denton works for one of the largest liquor companies on planet of the Earth and can get liquid nitrogen delivered to his office any damn day of the week and can make ice cream as quickly and efficiently as anyone else. So I don't want to hear it. You know, sometimes things are done best inefficiently. That's why I like a nice slow burn on mine. Listen, listen, listen. All I'm saying is, is whenever, whenever anyone says ice cream, I don't get to taste it, you ask a couple of facts. One, what is the freeze time? That's the easiest thing to see. How long did it take to freeze? Because everybody knows the faster you freeze it, the smaller the ice crystals. And the smaller the ice crystals, Don... The smoother the ice cream. Boom, 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 boom. Okay. Hey, Dave, Nastasia, et al. This is from Connor in Chicago. You've referenced on the show a few times that you used to roast... I still roast my own coffee. That you used to roast your own coffee using a whirly pop. I like the whirly pop. Yeah. Whirly pop? Yeah. Whirly pop. Uh, I'd like to try it myself, but my popcorn-loving girlfriend has some concern that if I use uh, our whirly pop, it will be forever tainted with coffee flavor. Is this the case, or will it be okay to use for both purposes so long as we give it a good scrub? Any other roasting tips would be greatly appreciated. Thanks, Connor in Chicago. Connor, you have a smart girlfriend. That coffee will ruin your whirly pop for uh, popcorn. It will turn your popcorn into garbage coffee oil popcorn, and you will not want to eat that. Uh, Guess what a whirly pop is? Not that expensive. If you're going to roast your own coffee, two... Two batches of uh, green coffee into roasted coffee in a whirly pop, and you've paid for the whirly pop. The problem with the whirly pop is that once you start, you know what a whirly pop is, right, Brian? Yeah. Right, Kevin? You know what a whirly pop is? You guys know whirly pop? Whirly pop? Once you start cranking that whirly pop, you cannot stop. And like, I am a well known non human, and so like, I can sit there and just crank the whirly pop until it's done because. I don't care whether I have physical discomfort or whether I need to pee or whether the house is burning down or whether the dog is peeing or barking or whether my kids are shouting at me because right now what I'm doing is making coffee. Many people are not like this. And so what happens is they stop cranking it and walk away and then it burns. This is a problem. So I have a 3D uh, model somewhere on my Insta, Twitter where you can download something that you can convert a whirly pop into a motorized thing for fairly cheap, uh, and it's pretty good. But um, the whirly pop is good. Just you got to keep cranking. Uh, I've since moved on. I built a drum roaster that's actually not quite as good as the whirly pop because I uh, it's too complicated to get into. But I, I still roast it on my own. And as a first step into it, 
Uh, Whirly Pop is great. Uh, some people prefer the flavor of air pop, uh, air, po- air popcorn popper coffee roasting. So there's basically in the home coffee roasting world, there are two fundamental kinds of people, and they're the people who like drum roast kind of coffee, and those people typically are whirly pop, or if they have money, harvest uh, you know the, the the mini drum roasters. And if I had a lot of money, I'd buy a Habes Burns uh, or Jabez, I don't know how he pronounced it back when he was alive, uh, sample roaster. And then there's the air pop people who are based on kind of the uh, civets model of roaster. Um, I used to air roast. I know Harold McGee likes an air roaster, but I kind of am a drum guy. What do you guys like? Do you guys even think about this? What are you, drum people? Drum. Drum. Kevin, do you have a feeling on this? Do you like air roasting? Do you like... Are you more of an espresso person or more of a, a of a drippy drip pour over drip drip drippy drip drip? Um, you know, I I think I'm more of a working man on the coffee. I like drip coffee. What does that mean, working man? You know, just turning it into a class. He's thing calling again. you out on how rich you are because I roast stuff in a popcorn machine. Because you have an espresso <laughs> maker. That I bought on eBay was shattered and had to put together, like disassemble completely, like boil in water on the stove that I found on the street and then reassemble. That kind of rich? Anyways. It's, this is what I'm trying to say. America, we have to get past this idea that because I like a particular kind of food and it's a class issue, just because I like to drink espresso doesn't mean that I hold my pinky out while I drink it. Although he does. That's also true. Um, Dave, time. What was I? I got. I got wait, wait, wait. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Let me see. We got some more questions. One more question. Can we do one more question? Uh, we're going long. Corn related. Let's see what we got. Let's see what we got. This is from Sean. Sean Andrews. Last week, depending on when you read this, you took a t- uh, question um, uh, about a low temperature proxy for dry aging. I've not been able to stop thinking about dry aging since. So this was someone who did um, like, a, like a warm hold on low temperature for meats to try to kickstart the enzymes uh, in meats to tenderize it uh, you know, relatively quickly. Um, the issue of trim loss from formation of the bad kind of crust during dry aging process seems ripe for analysis slash optimization from someone who understands the miracle of moisture management. Listen, I've never said I understand the miracle of moisture management. I mean, I kind of, I think I understand it more than most people, but I think that all of cooking is fundamentally, uh, all of cooking fundamentally boils down to two things. One, getting the temperature right, and two, the miracle of moisture management. Uh, Because almost everything, crusts, (laughs) like tater tots, french fries, uh, I mean, name a food, name a food. Uh, Jelly beans. (laughs) <laughs> moisture problem <laughs> moisture management sugar is hydrophilic right. it wants to pull the moisture out of the air so it is in fact actually a moisture problem right. all, all and, candies are and how do you think you get that skin on it by by, by it's Easter Sunday that's how you get cornstarch yeah moisture management baby that's like prime moisture management name another food <laughs> Boom! Name chicken food. wings. Chicken wings, obvious moisture management Come on, problem. Fried. Come on, man! It's more moisture management. Give me some. Give me another. I was food. trying to give you a softball after jelly beans. Beef jerky. You're what? drawing it out. I'm trying to ask for What you're making my point? People. Giving you beans and giving you jerky. Everything. You beans and jerky. There is a jerky brand in Denver, and th- I'm not making this up. It was in the airport. Climax jerky. <laughs> so. <laughs> 
<laughs> when you're getting on the airplane, you can buy yourself a package of Climax jerky, if you so choose. Okay. Never want to finish. So, uh, so I know I got to finish the question. Uh, Miracle of Moisture Management. Side note: Please uh, write a book on the topic of moisture management and use this title. I'll start a petition if necessary. Listen. Uh, Sean, nobody else but you and I believe that the miracle of moisture management. Don also believes that the miracle of moisture management is a good title for a book, but we're, believe uh, it or not, in the minority. I, I think uh, Moisture Intelligence. It's the second book in the <laughs> intelligence series. Art <laughs> and Science of Moisture Management. Um, I've read Kenji's posts on dry aging, which are pretty good, and I've looked into the literature on the subject, including dry aging of beef in a bag. Uh, highly permeable to water vapor, and you know you give the DOI number, which is nice. Uh, but I'm left with the sense that more can and should be done. Since my wife's birth, my wife's birthday present uh, to me this year is allowing me to create my own dry aging setup, which will include a fridge, internal fan, UV source. The UV source is interesting, actually. So UV radiation uh, on meat will prevent bacteria from growing. But what I has I don't think has been studied on long-term dry aging with UV is the possible rancidity caused by the UV light because uh, fats are clearly going to go rancid quicker under UV light than not. So it's an interesting question. And various wireless sensors. I'd appreciate any thoughts you may have on the subject, including safety, optimization, and whether or not you personally think it's worth it. Note, I'm probably going to do it no matter what you think. Awesome, which is my favorite kind of person. I love the show. Good luck with the spins all, and thanks for your time. So, Sean, I don't really know the answer uh, to your question. I'm going to actually put it out to the readers who have done more, uh, listeners rather, who have done more work with uh, dry aging, uh, but I'm going to give it um, kind of uh, more thoughts. Somebody else had a question. Uh, Josh had a question, which Don is telling me I'm not going to have time to get to, uh, but it's about whether or not you can do the old dulce de leche trick uh, with honey. No, you cannot. Um, so dulce de leche, uh, I typically make it because I'm a cheater. Uh, I don't make it the grandma way, which is over an open pot, stirring for a long time while it concentrates in my reaction. I do it by taking sweetened condensed milk and putting it into a pressure cooker, which is the way 99.9% of people who aren't like good normal people do. Uh, and uh, the question is, can you do that with honey? Will that happen? Answer, no. Uh, you need a lot of you need the milk proteins a bunch of it there is protein honey but not enough to have the, the kind of dulce de leche thing happen you might have some difference happen but you're not going to get dulce de leche but try it and let me know uh, I have more questions which I'm not going to get to because Don tells me that I'm out of time and next week back live in New York from Bushwick, Brooklyn with more cooking issues thanks guys listening to heritage radio network food radio supported by you for our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events subscribe to our newsletter enter your email at the bottom of our website heritageradionetwork.org connect with us on facebook instagram and twitter at heritage underscore radio heritage radio network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better fairer more delicious place and we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.